If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you're listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm with Lauren N. Howmesser to talk about her new book, The Democratic Collapse, How Gender Politics Broke a Party and a Nation, 1856 to 1861, published by University of North Carolina Press, 2022. The Democratic Collapse is a fresh examination of antebellum politics, comprehensively examines the way in which gender issues and gender discourse exacerbated fissures within the Democratic Party in the critical years between 1856 and 1861. Whereas cultural politics of gender had bolstered Democratic unity through the 1850s, the Lecompton Crisis and John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry revealed that white manhood and its association with familial and national protection meant disparate and ultimately incompatible things in free and slave society. In fierce debates over the extension of slavery, gendered rhetoric hardened conflict that ultimately led to the outbreak of the Civil War. Lauren Howmesser here traces how Northern and Southern Democrats and their partisan media organs use gender to make powerful arguments against slavery and about slavery as the sectional crisis grew from the emergence of the Republican Party to secession. Gender charges and counter charges turned slavery into an intractable cultural debate, raising the stakes of every dispute and making compromise ever more elusive. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today to talk about your new book. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Fantastic. Well, before we get into the content of the book, can you tell me a little bit about your academic background and the scholarly impetus for writing The Democratic Collapse? Yeah. So I um, got a BA in history from Boston College, go Eagles. And then I earned my MA and PhD in history from the University of Virginia, Um I was an advisee of Elizabeth Varon, um, who some listeners may know as a scholar of the Civil War and of gender and politics. So she was very influential for me in picking this topic and was also an excellent advisor. Um, So that's kind of how I ended up with this topic. I was always interested in 
19th century America and interested um, a bit in gender or women's history, uh, but it was really studying at UVA that that influenced me to write this book. So why focus on gendered rhetoric, discourse, politics, and antebellum America? What does this analysis reveal that prior non-gendered studies miss? So I think that a lot, that kind of the, the move in civil war causation and in that historiography is to try to understand, you know, everybody kind of accepts now that slavery caused the Civil War. Um, But we're trying to understand why slavery caused the Civil War when it did and what made slavery so divisive when it hadn't been previously. And so what I'm arguing here is that this gendered language that the conservative party, the Democratic Party, was using um, was one of those things that made slavery so divisive and um, so hard to compromise on when Americans previously had been willing to compromise on it. That's not saying one ever should compromise on something like this, but just that it had been possible for Americans at that time to do that. And I'm saying that gendered rhetoric by um, making it not just about the expansion of slavery, but about um, you know what that meant for American manhood um, and for American families uh, made it much harder for for conservatives to compromise on the issue. You mentioned the Democratic Party as a conservative party in the 1850s. Many in the contemporary uh, landscape will find that alien. What made the Democratic Party in the 1850s conservative? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, when you study a period, you get used to thinking like, oh, the Democrats, the conservatives, of course. Um, so a number of things, they, uh, and there are scholars out there who have written on this much more ably than I have, um, like Adam I.P. Smith and Jack Furness, but um, they were they were generally interested in the keeping the union, as they said, the union as it was, or the union as it was, you know, in the years right before the Civil War. They didn't support women's rights movements. They didn't support any form of what they saw as radicalism. So whether that was, um, you know, women's rights or free love, which was a very small movement, um, or even any form of anti-slaveryism that didn't have to be... uh, you know, abolition by any means to them. That was even just, um, you know, the any management of slavery, even in the South, was kind of off limits to them. So it was just a general idea of, of being resistant to change and also of um, holding the same racist ideology that, that many Americans did, most all um, white Americans did at the time. Um, but for them, it was a more central part of their their political worldview, I would say. So this political discussion, this this analysis begins in 1856, which is an election year, and you focus particularly on these conservative democratic attacks against radicalism personified and embodied in John C. Fremont, the Republican Party. What were some of the gendered language and rhetoric that Democrats used to attack this new upstart Republican Party? Oh, this is one of my favorite things. So they <laughs> they were all over John C. Fremont. They um, criticized his hair. Um, it was too feminine. Um, I guess men at the time parted their hair on the, they're supposed to part it on the side and women parted it in the middle. 
Um, and he parted his in the middle. So therefore, he was a woman, was the conclusion that Democrats came to. They also um, alleged that he had been disrespectful to his wife's father, his father-in-law, because he, who was a famous Democratic senator, as it were, um, Thomas Hart Benton. Um, and he, because he ran away with um, Thomas Hart Benton's daughter, Jesse, uh, Jesse Fremont, by the time they were married, um, you know, the line was that he had, Fremont had disrespected this famous senator. Um, there was also the line kind of in a, a Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, line of reasoning, this idea that uh, Jesse Fremont was the one who was really wearing the pants in the relationship. She was smart. She was beautiful. She was from a successful political family. And he was kind of like a bit of an upstart who was handsome and had, you know, led some um, expeditions into the West. But, you know, the line was he was kind of a stuff suit and she was the one who was really going to be running the White House if if he won the election. Now, Republicans played this to their advantage. They were like, well, that's great. You know, it's um, the Republicans, if they were more progressive, said this is a two for one special. You're going to get John Fremont, the handsome explorer, and you're going to get Jesse Fremont, the beautiful, um, intelligent kind of help who knows a lot about politics. More conservative Republicans were more inclined to play up, um, you know, Jesse Fremont's good looks, that she was very supportive at campaign events, whatever. But, um, you know, Republic, this the Democrats didn't pull this criticism out of thin air, but they really took it and ran with it. And the irony of this is that his opponent was unmarried. Yes, exactly. So his opponent in that election, James Buchanan, um, was himself unmarried. Um, There are a number of speculations about why that might be the case, whether he was gay or, um, you know, whatever that we think now. But at the time, um, the story he told was that he, uh, there were two stories. One was that he had been engaged to be married to somebody um, when he was young and she had passed away and he had never pursued anybody else after that, um, you know, because his heart was so broken. And, you know, the idea was that that was when he was in his like 20s. And, you know, by the time he's running for president, he's much older, had to have been in his 50s at least. Um So that was one story. The other line that Democrats put out was that James Buchanan was he was married to the Constitution because he was so committed to the union as it was that he didn't need a wife because, yeah, almost yeah, married to the Constitution was the line. They also played up the fact that he was uh, helpful, a patriarch in his own way. Um, that he took care of um, poor women in Pennsylvania, where he was from, that he donated to a women's home. Um, So Democrats really contrasted, you know, to them, they took John Fremont and his quote unquote out of control wife, Jesse, and they contrasted that to James Buchanan, who was in control of his feelings and taking care of these, you know, women in Pennsylvania and was um, therefore, though he had not kind of married and, you know, which might typically be thought of as more masculine, having a wife, um, he was nonetheless had been more successful than Fremont in that realm. So the Democrats win 1856, but gender discourse does not stop. And there's this whole controversy over the notion of domestic institution that arises after the election pertaining to Kansas, Nebraska, and 
the controversy in Utah. What is a domestic institution, what was considered domestic institution in the 1850s, and how did it apply to the, the distinct crises in Kansas, Nebraska, and Utah? That's such a good question. And this was, to me, kind of the most interesting find um, in doing the research for this book. So the the phrase domestic institutions had been used in a variety of ways. Um, It was used to talk about anything from um, a state's court system um, and its elections uh, to the institution of marriage um, to the institution of slavery. And the idea was that in particular, the institution of marriage and the institution of slavery, but also um, local elections and the judiciary should be under control of the people of the white men in that district, whether that was your own household, if you were a white man controlling what happened in your own household, or whether you were a man in Kansas or Utah and you deserve to control what happened in your state. So all of this revolves around the idea of white patriarchy, and it just depends on what scale we're talking, whether we're talking a household or whether we're talking a state. And Republicans in their 1856 platform have a line that said, um, you know, they were opposed to the twin barbarisms of polygamy and slavery. And historians, myself included, had read that line, you know, hundreds of times that you just skim over it and you're like, oh yeah, polygamy and slavery. And then we go on to focus on the slavery part. But actually Republicans took polygamy really almost as seriously as they took slavery. And they argue that these were two forms of... um, kind of like out of control um, excesses where where households were out of control, where there was, um, things were disordered in some way. And this put Democrats in an awkward position because Northern Democrats had come up, in particular, Stephen Douglas had come up with this idea of popular sovereignty. And the idea was that uh, men, white men out West um, in Western states could decide whether or not they wanted their state to allow slavery. And, and this, you know, violated the, you know, abrogated the Missouri Compromise and this is very controversial. But Northern Democrats in particular, and Southern Democrats for a time, thought that this was really convenient. Like, oh, great, we're not going to have to talk about slavery in Congress anymore. We're just going to devolve this issue to the states and let the states decide. Like, how, how democratic is that? Well, of course, it doesn't work, and it becomes incredibly controversial. And what Republicans are pointing out is if Democrats support popular sovereignty as it relates to slavery... Do they also want to allow Mormon men in Utah to allow polygamy? And this is super awkward for Democrats because, no, they don't want to allow polygamy. And and the Mormons are incredibly unpopular. They've been chased out of multiple states at gunpoint. They have to end up out west. Um, And, uh, you know, they don't really know. Democrats don't really know what to make of this argument. And so they're kind of they don't ever really mount a consistent defense to this because, their principle of popular sovereignty would lead to allowing slavery in Kansas and polygamy in Utah. Um, Ultimately, 
Northern Democrats kind of try to dodge this issue and Southern Democrats are willing to say, no, we just want control of our households no matter what. But it really makes the Democratic Party look quite bad and points out the the real flaws in the idea of devolving a profound moral issue down to the state level. So white manhood is so essential to all the parties involved. Can we just give a brief sense in why both Democrats and Republicans valued this ideal, but how they conceptualized it differently? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, And that's something that I was really trying to articulate or think about the entire time I was writing my book. Indeed, my advisor kept saying, you know, I really think you're going to have to come up with some definition of democratic manhood. Um, And it it took me a while to do it. But I, I do think that for Northern Democrats in particular, um, control over their own households was absolutely critical. And they believe they really believed in white men's unmitigated control over their own household and their own political jurisdiction. I think Republicans were not meaningfully progressive by by any modern standard, let's be clear. But some Republicans were more comfortable with the idea of um, a domestic type of feminism. So kind of like a separate spheres feminism of saying, oh, women ha- do have great value, but just in this one kind of small area of the home. Whereas I think Democrats were more likely to say, no, this is just um, just white men who ought to have control over their homes. So, yes. So we have two conceptions of white manhood, but you indicate that Republicans weren't as progressive as Democrats, especially in hindsight. These groups disagreed on gender issues slightly. But yet it seemed that in your your history, and I thought this was very revealing, Whites in the South viewed the North as an alien culture, totally different from their own, that, that in a sense, uh, so different it could not lead to lasting unity. So explain exactly what Southern men and women, especially women you mentioned in in the novels that you, you closely read, how did these, how did Southerners view the North? That's a good question. So I think, and this is, kind of one of the the takeaways from my book is that these gendered charges and counter charges that Democrats are deploying that initially work in their favor, they ultimately kind of poison the well in the South and that they they can start to convince Southerners, you know, some some Southern Democrats realize that they're just saying these things to win elections, but Others, particularly because of the partisan press, uh, really start to believe what they're saying. And so the types of things they're saying is that all of the things that Democrats accused Republicans of in 1856, so of supporting women's rights, of supporting free love, of all being abolitionists, all of these things that were really not true, but they said to win an election by 1860 become the genuine belief of many Southerners, many white Southerners. 
And so white Southerners, by the time Abraham Lincoln, a Northerner, wins the election in 1860, they believe that they are going to be ruled by a class of people who are so profoundly socially radical and different from they are from them that it's just culturally incompatible and it can't be allowed. And of course, they believe this is going to upset their control of their households too. They say, you know, if um, they these Northern Republicans and, and just all Northerners are going to um, abolish slavery, uh, they're going to allow women's rights. Um, if there is a war, it will result in the assault of our women, our quote unquote women. And so I think that this is a, a real lesson from this period is kind of the, the power of uh, what politicians will say to win elections. And though they might understand they're just saying that to win elections, that the consumers of media might not understand that. Um, and might pick it up and run with it in a way that they um, that the politicians no longer have control over. And I think that this is something we see after the election. Stephen Douglas, um, you know, went to the South, tried to give a speaking tour in the South to try to convince people, you know, that not to secede and that that they should stay in the union. Um, and obviously, it didn't work. And it felt like he was trying. He kind of realized that his crass political tactics had real implications, but he realized that far too late and it had, you know, run away without him and there was nothing he could do to, to rein it back in. And also these differences in perceived, perceived differences in culture were exacerbated by John Brown's insurrection at Harper's Ferry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's just another example of kind of how the sides start to split in their response to a critical event. Um, you know, Democrats were thrilled to accuse Republicans of having somehow contributed to the raid in Harper's Ferry. Um, but, you know, Republicans, of course, denied it. Uh, and in most ways, they had nothing to do with it. Um, but Democrats pointed to the raid to say, look, if you elect Republicans, uh, this is what you get. And the Republicans had had great success in the midterms that had happened, you know, just before John Brown's raid. And so they said, look, you you elect Republicans and you get, you know, a raid that is um, intended to start a slave insurrection. Obviously, a very simple, uh, very crass, very inaccurate message, but it caught on and and people believed them. I was actually reading the chapter on John Brown during the anniversary of the uh, Harper's Ferry insurrection, and I always I always send my my father the end of uh, Thoreau's pet passage calling John Brown an angel of light. Um, so the divisions are increasingly reified. The country is leading towards disunion, but there's an election in 1860, and before the union dissolves, a party dissolves. How did these gendered concepts and rhetorics and discourses, especially pertaining to compromise, which you've already mentioned, lead to the collapse of the Democratic Party in 1860? Yeah, so kind of there are um, 
you know, I think that the die had been cast by the Democrats behavior over the past few years. Um, Northern and Southern Democrats went to their convention in Charleston with the intention of nominating. They were one party and they were going to nominate one candidate um, to counter the Republican Party um, and also ultimately the the Constitutional Union Party in that election. Uh, And they didn't succeed. Um, You know, first of all, if you're going to have a convention where you're trying to get the North and the South to compromise on something, Charleston is probably not the best place to do it. It was hot. Like it was, the convention was like in April and it was already hot and cramped and the, you know, the hotels had jacked up all the prices for the Northerners who were staying there. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, Southerners came into the nominating convention convinced that they needed a Southern candidate. Um, and that they needed a plank in the platform affirming um, slavery's perpetual expansion. And Northern Democrats weren't willing to give that to them. Northern Democrats felt like they had, you know, they were admittedly in a tight spot in the North trying to carve a path between being seen as no different from the Republicans, in which case just vote for a Republican, and being a lackey of... Southern Democrats. And so they felt if they went back to their Northern constituents saying, yeah, we nominated a Southerner. And by the way, now we unequivocally support slavery. That's that's not going to fly. So so in a way, the politics of it were already very difficult. But I think part of what made them increasingly unwilling to compromise was gendered language, both the fact that Southerners thought Northerners were radical um, because they had been arguing that for years, and also that they had come to see compromise as not manly. And newspapers, in particular, contributed to this. The partisan press—they, you know, the partisan press back home. All these delegates went to, you know, Charleston, but the press was typing away saying that, you know, if he has a firm backbone, he won't compromise with those Northerners or, um, you know, like if he wants to take a real stand and, you know, be a real man, then, you know, he won't give them a pro-slavery plank to the platform. So it was all of this gender language basically saying, if you're a real man, you won't compromise. And that makes it awfully hard to, to compromise. That's a, that's a bad environment um, to go into if you're trying to make a deal. Yeah, I was simultaneously reading uh, Madness Rules This Hour by Paul Starobin, which talks about South Carolina in 1850s. And I can't think of a worse state to hold a unifying convention than Charleston, South Carolina in the 1860s. So compromise has been feminized in 1860 in the Democrats. It leads to a split. But then as the secession crisis continues, compromise is then masculinized. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, it's because gender is a construct and nothing is real. So I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's because it is whatever you need it to be at that time, right, is is what gender is. And so I think that when it when nobody wanted to compromise, then compromise is a, is a bad woman thing to do. But then when suddenly, oh, crap, the union might fall apart. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. If you're a real man, you'll sort this out and you'll compromise. So I think it just speaks to how much of this is just 
constructed and just a way to try to get people to behave in a way that you want to, and also to underline the fact that anything associated with women was perceived to be bad. Mm. And then one part I thought was fascinating in your study towards the end was the this compromise discussion and the feminization of it was a tactic by the deep south to convince the upper south to to secede. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of the times when we think about secession, you know, especially uh, – I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe just me if I'm being like intellectually lazy, but it's like, oh, and then the South seceded and like, oh, my book, the book is done. Right. But really that was a process that had to happen. The the deep South, of course, seceded relatively quickly, but there was a big question mark over the upper South, not just the border States, but the upper South. Um, And the question was what was going to happen there. And, And of course the deep South then used gendered tactics to try to convince the upper South to join them. Um, Part of that was, gendered language about compromise, as you pointed out, saying, no, 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 compromise um, is still bad. And, you know, you shouldn't do it. And other people who are trying to get the upper South to stay is saying, oh, no, compromise is really, really good. It's it's very masculine, you know. So again, it just speaks to it is whatever you want it to be at the time. Um, they're also, of course, using language about um, sexual assault, threatening that if they uh, don't join the South, that um, the North will free the slaves, and that will lead to the rape of white women by black men. Obviously untrue, um, but that was you know a huge perceived threat um, and a powerful one to make at the time. But then people who wanted the Upper South to stay in the Union said, oh, but you know, if you join the South and there's, if you, if you join the Confederacy and there's a war, then white soldiers might march through and, um, and rape white women. And that would be bad too. So there are all these threats about the rape of white women, um, that are intended to motivate, uh, politicians in the South to go one way or the other. And in reference to the earlier discussion on the differences between sections, one, uh, thing that you brought up in the study that has stuck with me was this woman I believe was living in Northern Virginia who talked about the North as this, as you said, radical haven of abolitionism, free love, uh, all isms, as you say, right? Isms as a kind of catch-all for unsavoriness. Yeah. Free love ism. Yeah. Socialism. Mm -hmm. But that this woman only lived like 15 miles from the border of Pennsylvania. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she had intimate knowledge with what the North was like, but she had already been in the Upper South captured by this yeah. kind of Yeah, I think that this, this is kind of what um, Ed Ayers has written about and, and did with the, the Valley of the Shadow product talk, project talking about the Shenandoah Valley and how it's a great example of how um, – of kind of this like borderland where there is a lot of interchange um, among the sections, but once people are forced to choose sides, they choose sides. Um, And I think that the language of the partisan press um, certainly helped with that by portraying the North as, um, you know, radical and scary. It's kind of the same language that you hear about, uh, you know, San Francisco today is is what it reminds me of, or New York um, saying, oh, it's, 
you know, things are so, so radical. They're so disordered, you know, people with all these different sexualities and genders and, you know, things are just out of control and we just can't have that. And we wouldn't want their influence in our parts. And I think that that type of uh, language in local newspapers was really influential because if you hear that over and over again, and she'd never, you know, been to Boston, but that's the information she has. And so she starts to believe it, you know, and if, if forced to choose sides, she knows what size she's on. Well, I appreciate that answer because it led someone to my next question about the implications for the study. You recently wrote an op-ed, remind me in the newspaper on the recent midterms. Um, in the, I think I wrote one on, um, the January 6th attack in the Washington post. Okay, sure. So, uh, are, was it was it wasn't there one on if the conservative party doesn't win? Um, so I wrote I the op-ed I wrote was about because um, I was actually living in Washington D.C. during the January sixth attack on the Capitol, and so I wrote about uh, kind of how the Republican Party today has been less than careful with the language that they use and the arguments that they're willing to make to win elections. And that though some of them may understand that though, though many elected Republicans surely understand that the 2020 election was not stolen, um, it's an effective tactic uh, and it has gotten out of their control. Um, And so, you know, sitting kind of from my post in DC, watching, you know, it was insane, like from kind of November, October, November through January, um, having parts of the city blocked off. And then ultimately at the end, the, the attack on the Capitol, I mean, I think every historian sees their research everywhere, but that felt particularly uh, relevant to what I'd studied, just that a conservative party had not been careful with the language they used and the arguments that they'd made. And initially it was just politicians participating in it, but once it was picked up by the partisan press and disseminated, it was out of their control and they were going to have to try awful hard to reel it back in. And it wasn't clear that they were going to try to do that. Great. Thank you for clarifying. I, I it was 2022, but in some sense, 2022, we had a conservative party very much expecting to win big in an election and then coming up, coming up short. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, it's when I started writing this, I started working on this, you know, I guess as a master's essay in, 2014. So it was of interest really just to me. And and it was a crazy experience to be writing this book and feeling like I was somehow manifesting this awful kind of trend in American politics. Would you give up the PhD for it? No, I am kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, Dr. Homicer is pretty nice. <laughs> well, uh, Lauren, thank you so much for talking about this book. I thought it was uh, wonderful and revealing, and I think an important addition to uh, antebellum historiography. But before we leave, just tell us about any potential future projects, scholarly or not, that you have in the waiting. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. So kind of, I have both scholarly and not. So after I finished my PhD, I went to work um, as a researcher at a women's rights organization at a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., 
And I did that for a few years. Uh, and then I started to feel like um, I was writing the same type of thing over and over again. And it wasn't clear anything was changing. And I wasn't sure how much, uh, you know, like Joe Manchin cared about a report on the gender wage gap. And so I think it's important work, but I wasn't sure it was the best use of um, kind of my persuasive skills uh, that you develop as a historian. Um, and so I applied to go to law school. And so I'm um, I'm now in law school and I'm hoping to pursue a career in, in some sort of gender equity litigation. Um, so that's kind of the non-academic uh, side, or at least non-history side. Um, on the history side of things, this past spring, I was fortunate to be um, a fellow at uh, Harvard's Schlesinger Library, which is their women's history library. And I was doing research on conservative women's activism in the United States. So my my kind of right now mythical because I'm in I'm in first year of law school. Um, but <laughs> my second book project uh, would be on uh, a long history of conservative women's activism in the United States. A lot of the um, as I'm sure you you noticed, there were a lot of conservative women in my book, and I felt like not that I gave them short shrift, but I, I couldn't dive as deep into, they were examples of conservatism in my book, but I couldn't dive as deep into why those women believed what they believed and why they did what they did. Um, and so I was really interested in that. And there were women I ran into in the archives whose papers just ended up not really fitting in anywhere in the book. And, um, and so they didn't get used, but that kind of first start got me thinking about it. And then, um, yeah, I just, you know, those trends in conservative women's activism kind of go through the late 19th and into the early 20, early to mid 20th century. And I think that as, uh, you know, modern readers, you might be inclined to think that the Phyllis Schlafly's of the world and, you know, the Fox News hope. Yeah, you might think that those are a new phenomenon or just a response to, uh, you know, kind of 1970s feminism. But I think that there is a long history of conservative women's activism in America, of conservative women supporting the status quo, both racially and in terms of um, gender norms. And so I'm really excited to, to dig into that. Yes, I recently read Linda Gordon's The Second Coming of the KKK, which focuses a lot on female participation and support yes. of the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, uh, Lauren, again, thank you so much for talking about this wonderful book, uh, I hope that your future projects are successful and come to fruition. I, I'm very excited to read anything on uh, conservative activism, let alone something on, on women in the 19th century. So I'm excited for that. Uh, but, but again, thank you so much for talking about the democratic collapse. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Fantastic. Well, you have been listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. We have been interviewing Lauren Howmesser talking about her new book, The Democratic Collapse, How Gender Politics Broke a Party in a Nation, 1856 to 1861, published by UNC Press. I've been your host, Jackson Reinhardt. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day.